Yo, what's up? This is Real Sankara Hours. Um, this is, yeah, uh, close to the end of the year. But anyway, yeah, Real Sankara Hours. Uh, and before I forget, follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Um, you know, your favorite black Marxist political podcast where we talk about um, current events from, like, you know, a black radical left perspective. Um, yeah, it's it's close to the end of the year. I mean, it's like December 29th, so... Um, December you know. 30th over here. Two right. more days. <laughs> yeah, it's almost the end of 2020, so this is like our last episode of the year. So we're basically going to be talking about um, Eidos, reparations, and Kwanzaa, and then anything else that comes to mind, uh, if time permits. But um, yeah... Before we go on, um, just introduce ourselves. I'm Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson Five on Twitter. Um, Peter M Gunn. Follow me at M Gunn Peter. If and yeah, you're still and on also, Twitter for some reason. Yeah, Twitter's been just like I was saying before the recording. Twitter's like just seems a lot just nuttier yeah. than usual. But um, oh yeah, and before I forget, um. If you want to support independent black media like ours, you can subscribe for $5 a month at patreon.com slash hours. Again, patreon.com slash hours. $5 a month gets you bonus episodes where we have, um, yeah, uh, you know, sort of like additional um, stuff to talk about, theory, theory readings, um, other kinds of interviews, other kinds of commentary. Um, our last one was about the... Uh, this force to vote thing that's been going on. And um, yeah, we had a preview of that, by the way, like a 15 minute uh, clip of that, that we decided to release for free. So that's just a taste of what you get on bonus episodes. So if you're interested and you want to, and especially if you want to support real independent black media, political podcast, yeah, $5 a month, um, patreon.com slash real song car hours gets you bonus content, bonus content, and also keeps this, podcast afloat and for those of you who are our patrons thank you so much especially since you know this is uh the end of the year it's um i'm honestly like you know when we decided to yeah create this podcast a year ago um yeah we started talking about it a year ago and admittedly part of my impetus was like election years are always a little kooky and i kind of wanted to just have a place to talk about stuff because i didn't want to like spent a lot of time writing about it and i was like you know some shit's gonna happen <laughs> um and boy little, oh boy <laughs> little did we know little did we know so it's honestly been great you know uh being here with all of y'all um and yeah just being able to to dish because this shit this shit crazy yo yeah and um l- let's get into it so um uh for those of you some of you are probably familiar but for those of you who don't know there is this group called um american descendants of slavery and they've been making this um push for reparations for um basically um african americans those of us who are descendants of enslaved africans brought to the united states um and they formed i think back in 2017 and just to be clear like the reparations fight has been going on for decades 
So this is um, this is nothing new, but I think like Ados has kind of yeah. found, I think like a, an increased level. I don't know how much, but like there's like a level of a uh, salience it's been having, particularly yeah. after the uh, Obama Obama years, and um, also Tanahisi Coates's um, case for reparations, which came out in 2014. And also, uh, just to be clear and be fair, um, Movement for Black Lives back in 2016 on their 2016 platform, which is still on their 2020 platform, they did also, they also have like reparations as part of the platform. So the call for reparations for slavery and systemic racism have been part of the black political, you know, uh, activism for a long time. So Eidos is just like a, it's like another iteration of it, but um, th- yeah, yeah, I mean they call it a movement, I suppose. It seems to be mostly online. But... Yeah, they have chapters, you know, throughout the country, but a lot of the energy, at least from what I'm seeing, seems to be like very online driven. And so it's actually it was actually founded by Yvette Carnell and Antonio Moore. Like they're sort of like I'd say the definitely like Yvette Carnell is like one of the biggest. Uh, spokespeople of of the movement um but yeah like we've i i we've been thinking about this for a while and i've been thinking about ados like and how to attack how to how to not really attack but like approach approach it because like i think there are some things some legitimate things they have to say but then there are other things that are just like so off the rails yeah that i think that just there just has to be like some reasonable pushback so uh actually yeah peter what 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 do you think of ados before i kind of dive into it um you know i generally try to stay out of this stuff um just to not you know feel like i'm you know kind of pitting people against each other or whatever yeah trying to just stay relentlessly pro-black in the in the broader sense but there's obviously some things that are that are that raise some questions i mean where the group gets its funding and we'll get into that but i also find that it is just like it seems to represent like a very narrow kind of imagination like in a political imagination in terms of what it wants it, it's like the idea is basically that sort of the broader uh i don't necessarily say pan-african but kind of the broader umbrella of blackness is not sufficiently representative of the specific experience of you know the people who have been not just enslaved uh in on american plantations specifically but then you know have been in america since then and that you know that specific uh that's that specific group of people and experience and they feel that that's getting erased sort of by the inclusion of I guess African immigrants and yeah, uh, and yeah. also Caribbean immigrants. Yeah, and I think okay. So here's I before I I have like a lot of critiques, but here's where I think they make some legitimate points. Does I in in yeah for this episode I just want to be like as fair but also still deeply critical as possible. Um, because yeah, like this is a kind of like a, especially if you're around like. Uh, not not just black people, but like Adolfs are very like intense online. So, um, 
the thing that the thing that really makes them contentious and let's just like get it out is I really think Ados has become the uh kind of face of um uh, xenophobia within black America. And so like but in but before I dive into that, like here's where I think that they make a legitimate point, which is that um I think like now like the kind of narrative of blackness has changed in the 21st century because now you have like more African immigrants from like Nigeria, Kenya, and like they have their own kind of, I guess, especially like in media and discourse and social media, like they have like their own, there's like a, their own experience there. And then you have um, Caribbean immigrants. But the thing is about Caribbean immigrants, like, they've always been in the United States, even though like they weren't enslaved by the United States, they've always been part of the black American experience. So yeah. And, that's and, why, and like, are some of the most, some of the strongest fighters. Yeah. I mean, uh, Marcus Garvey was from Jamaica. Um, Stokely Carmichael, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael, later known as Kwame Ture is from Trinidad. Uh, Claudia Jones, I think. Yeah. She's from the Caribbean, uh, Trinidad as well. So like, the thing is like when Caribbean, Caribbean's, whenever Caribbeans, especially like English, English speaking Caribbeans have come to the United States, they were always part of the black American experience. And there was always that sense of like, we're basically like the same people except like, okay, yeah, like you're, and also even some African Americans, if you trace some people's families, like some people have like Caribbeans in their family, just and even just like in my own experience, I remember one guy, uh, who lives in my city, who's, um, I think he's like a local pastor. And I always thought like he was, he just always struck me as like normal, like just a black man in America. But I mean, he also mentioned like, yeah, he's from the Caribbean. So it's like, the thing is Jamaicans, Caribbeans have always been part of the black, the black experience in the United States. There we go. That's what I mean. The black experience in the black community within the United States. They just happen to be Caribbean. Even like one of my friends in high school was Caribbean, but he was just like, you know, identified as and had the same experience of a of a black man like I did in the United States. It's just his family was from the Caribbean. But yeah, because white people don't really draw the distinction, and the cops right. definitely don't. Right, so. and also like when they grow up here for a long time, especially if you're like I was saying with my friend when we're young, when we're growing up together in the United States, like we don't really make that kind of hard of a distinction that much. I mean, some people might maybe in other parts of the United States, but you know, where I grew up in the Bay Area, like, that wasn't really, it was just like, yeah, you would notice they're Caribbean, but, like, you're just a black person just like I am in the United States. We have fundamentally the same experience. And, yeah, when you, when you factor in racial profiling, like, look at, look at, uh, Botham Jean. He was from the Caribbean, but, like, that didn't stop Amber Geiger from killing him. So, he was just another black man. So, but, um, but yeah, like I, the thing where I think Ados has a point is that there is something unique and specific about the Black American experience and also identity in the sense of like we we do have a common history and culture here in the United States that is uniquely African American, Black American in terms of like our culture, blues and jazz. Like we have a, and also because we've those of us who are enslaved by the United States, you know, going back to 1619 or, you know, depending on how you you do the history could be even further, but definitely 1619 is like the, a major pivotal year. Um, yeah. We have a relationship with the United States because of slavery. And that's, whereas 
you know, people in the Caribbean, like, their experience being enslaved by Great Britain. And then also, I mean, before I forget, the other narrative that's been, like, having more prominence is the experience of uh, Afro-Latinos or, you know, black people in Latin America. So the narrative of what it means to be black has been there's been a shift which i don't i don't think that's bad i think it's I, i'm totally fine with people speaking to their own unique cultural experiences and so i do think like where adels has a point is that the Afri- like african americans like we are a distinct i would say like ethnic group or a nation of people in the same way that like uh black cubans are distinct in their own right in terms of like having like their own unique culture and history same with jamaicans but fundamentally we're all descendants of the transatlantic slave trade and this is where i'm this is where i'm starting to depart from adels is that fun like fundamentally <laughs> we're all descendants of the transatlantic slave trade the only difference is where the slave ship dropped us off and yeah we have different experiences and different cultural identities but fundamentally like our roots are fundamentally the same the ships the ships the ships picked our ancestors off from the slate the same point which is western and central africa the only difference is where the slave ship dropped us off uh so and i actually think that matters when it comes to reparations because um yeah maybe when, like when it comes to the united states and that kind of specific claim and this is this is what, what ados what they say is that like they say ados is a lineage and so they're trying to say like they want to make that distinction particularly on the u.s census to make some sort of to make a legal claim for reparations to distinguish Ados from Jamaicans, African immigrants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Which on that that makes sense. But yeah. this is where I'm, I'm going to diverge. Yeah. Is that wow? Pe- I yeah. I go I, ahead. I just want to say about the census thing. Like it actually does make sense because I got my census taken this year, and I remember you know asking when they get to the race question. Like I right. said, like, you know, white and African-American. And, and he's like, do you know what part of Africa? I was like, no. Right. I was like, you know, well, you know, like, you could, you know, there's all sorts of different stuff. You, be, you know, Kenyan or Somali or Congolese. I was like, no, we, we don't go back though. Can't, can't trace back that far, you know. Go back yeah. to uh, Georgia and that's about it. At right. Least as far, you know, other people is different. But for me, it's like, yeah, that's about as far back as it goes. So I think, yeah, I think there might be some utility, though, the need to, like, know exactly what, you know, uh, like, like the racial taxonomy, like, in general, you know, I have some questions about and like, what purpose it actually serves. But if we're doing it, uh, yeah, I think it does make sense to have that as a distinct category, precisely because there are different experiences, there are different, uh, there, you know, people come over at different times, and so there may be some utility in that. But mm-hmm. of course, then it's like, well, if you're, what if you're like second generation Nigerian, right, or something like that, right? Right, yeah. And in, I mean, let's even add this. Let's say people who are Caribbean, but they've been here for maybe three or four generations, because there are some Caribbeans here in the United States whose presence here is, goes back to like hell even like the early 1900s to late 1800s so in that sense yeah. like just in terms of citizenship and their experience they're just as american as african americans it's just again like when you trace back their history oh it goes back to the caribbean so that means like yeah like th- like 
they they're also descendants of the transatlantic slave trade, but they're experienced. They're the in terms of their history with the slave trade, it's you know more focused on the Caribbean. But like if someone's if someone's like Jamaican or 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 you know from any other part of the Caribbean, and if they've been living in the United States for multiple generations, you know for all intents and purposes they're American. They they'll still have like their unique Caribbean cultural identity, but you know like. They're just as American in terms of experience as African Americans, so there's also that. Uh, where I diverge from Ados, and I think actually, I think this is really important to bring up, is that like the name itself, American Descendants of Slavery, always threw me off because t- to me it's like I can see where it's getting at. It. Like, okay, yeah, it does make sense for in terms of taxonomy specificity to name the specific ethnic cultural national identity of african americans and black americans especially you know not even just like the just for the specific claim of uh, reparations but also just like having a sense of uh, consciousness and respect for the black american experience um the, the same respect that you would give to you would give to any other group right but like when you say American descendants of slavery, um, my question is like, okay, well, where do slaves come from? Because that's pretty important. Because like, like okay, I'll bring this up. Like being in California, this is one thing I know, and it it, it doesn't get talked about enough. Is that if you look at the history of California, there was slavery in California, even though California, in mainstream historical discussion, is seen as a free state, but it, California does have like a i would say like an underground history of slavery and so black slaves were allowed in california but like it was basically like if white settlers brought their slaves their enslaved africans to california california didn't really do much but also when it came to native americans they were allowed to be enslaved too and so what okay so why am i bringing this up okay so let's say native americans say like hey uh, we're American descendants of slavery too. So how do you make that distinction? The only distinction is like where what which slavery you're talking about. So okay, in the case of Native Americans, that's a specific form of slavery. But then it's like okay, well they're American. So what what's the distinction? Well, the distinction is that Native Americans, in terms of their ancestry, is tied to this land. When it comes to the lineage that Adolf talks about this is where i think like they're just they're just wrong Adolf is not really like like when you're talking about lineage you have to trace it back to like a specific uh geographic location right so okay before america was called america it's it's this continent still existed right so that means like the indigenous people who were here before their ancestry is tied to this geo, this geographic location that we call North America and then also South America, right? People who are descendants of the transatlantic slave trade, we're not indigenous to this geographical location. We just aren't. Have, we've been here a long fucking time because of slavery, right? But our fundamental ancestral lineage, the point of origin is not this location. The point of origin for our ancestry, when you're talking about lineage, is africa and to get to peter's point where it gets tricky is that yeah it does get weird like okay well we're what part of africa do we come from it is weird right especially on a family basis like you know 
for a lot of African Americans, you start tracing back the history, it goes back to plantations in like Georgia, or Virginia, or or Louisiana or Alabama, right? Because it's it's hard it's hard to trace back for African Americans. But the good thing is that other historians have picked up on this. They've done mostly like I'd say estimates based on. And this is a good thing, and I, I want to bring this up because this is something you don't have to take a DNA test for. So, like, yeah, DNA tests are freaking expensive. One of my relatives thankfully took one to help us understand some of our lineage. But, again, they're fucking expensive. And also, DNA tests, a lot of those companies share your DNA with the feds, too. So be picky about yeah, that. Yeah, having, <laughs> having, a, having just a whole database of people's right. gen- genomes is... <laughs> yeah, but, like, historians, based on... um. There's other historical evidence that you can use to trace back, like, where African Americans come from. And there is this uh, database site of uh, slave voyages, and I put it in the show notes. And it does a good job of tracing back because this was a slave trade, right? So it was a business. So they were keeping track of their property and, like, where, you know, where the ships landed and where they dropped off because they're trying to keep track of, like, okay this is our cargo, quote-unquote, this is our property. We want to know where it comes from and all that. So there's some, um, there's been, there's documentation on that. I mean, there's documentation. I mean, hell, look, if you go to the African continent, they still have the slave ports. So we know at least based on that, like, based on those pieces of evidence, historians, historians have been able to map out that for African-Americans, if you're going to pinpoint specific locations on the African continent, it's going to be the Senegambia region, Sierra Leone, Ghana, Nigeria, and Angola. And for the rest of the diaspora, it's pretty similar. Um, so, but the thing is, when you talk to individual African Americans, are if, if, if any one of us were to take a DNA test, any one of us African Americans, our actual lineage is going to be all over the African continent. So what I mean is that, like, we can't directly trace to one specific ethnic group. It's all, like... Well, Lizzo can. She's 100% that bitch, but everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, yeah, like, uh, um, oh, the late Chadwick Boseman, he's a really good example. He traced his lineage to, I think it was Nigeria and Sierra Leone. And within Sierra Leone, it was two different ethnic groups. So someone like him who's African-American, he has, like, different African ethnic groups in his lineage so and i'm using him as as an example that like for a lot of african americans if you actually did those more specific dna tests you would find the same result so in a sense that means like yeah like we have a we're almost like our own i guess you could say tribe or ethnic group or nation because yeah our lineage is a little bit different but it still traces back to the african continent so why do i say that i think that like, if you're trying to make a claim, like, specifically for reparations and trying to make that distinction, that distinction matters. So when they, when people say lineage, our lineage is African, but when it comes to history, our history is tied to the United States. So when you start talking about stuff like, you know, identity, you have to look at ancestry, history, culture, those sorts of things. So when it comes to culture and history, yeah, there is a unique African-American history and culture in the same way there's a unique Jamaican history and culture in etc etc but when you look at all of us like yeah our our ancestry is fundamentally similar because the slave ships were coming from the same continent the same pretty much the same regions in africa but um the reason why i want to make the distinction is because 
the whole like emphasis on like this is this this is really getting to like what where I disagree with Ados is like there's this sense of like merit like rah 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 Americanism in Ados, which is just like that's what's been causing the backlash from Ad- uh, against Ados. Like it's very um yeah, there's a lot of like American jingoism rather than like because my thing would be like it would make more sense if if there was just like some sort of declaring Black America as like some sort of autonomous nation of people that to me would make more sense because that's actually more of who we are we're basically like a nation of people without sovereignty but then when you attach that to like you know hugging like wrapping yourself in the american flag then it's like okay no i'm that's friends yeah like that's that's where it loses me because then it's like this is the same country that enslaved us and it's also the same country that we're demanding reparations from so yeah. how does like that's you, you see like that's just like yeah. okay that, there, that's yeah. like, it doesn't make well, sense there oftentimes there's a whole uh complex about you know the colonized wanting recognition from the colonizer um and that that's you know fanon talks about or uh, gwen colthar talks about in red skin white mass specifically in a more indigenous context but you can draw stuff out uh and it's like i mean i don't understand why really but also like why limit yourself like really you're gonna we're gonna do all the struggling just to be part of america just because you want to move up floors on the sinking ship because you want to get to the top deck like like, yeah this is Mm -hmm. you know yeah this like have some better horizons and imaginations than just wanting to be another part of america i understand the whole and i mean the reason that they that sort of they try to draw the line is like uh is that, you know, the, the ADOS or Foundational Black Americans, which is like another offshoot that's, I guess, more... Tariq Nasheed's thing. Yeah, Dallas, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess they're like competing groups. Like, the idea is basically that it is our labor that built the wealth of this country, and therefore, you know, we're entitled to recompense of that. And, of course, other people didn't, or, you know, they built the labor. They built the wealth of other colonies, etc. And so it's... Yeah, it's this very kind of narrow focus. But here's, but my thing is that, like, drawing that distinction is kind of dependent on, uh, like, a version of reparations where you're actually expropriating slaveholder wealth, uh, which, Mm. you know, is something I would love to do. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that because it can also just, because that's not what they're asking for. They're not trying to do that. They're just asking for sort of the government to cut checks, which... Considering that, you know, this year has proven that the government is perfectly capable of generating trillions of dollars out of thin air to give yeah. to, you know, any corporation of sufficient size that wants it, it is, it, they cannot really make the argument that they could not generate the money necessary, which is, I get, I think the dollar figure is around a trillion dollars, uh, mm. to just cut checks, give every black person $100,000 or whatever you know whatever the figure is and then just you know america could then just officially i don't know be done with this stuff like i think it it, i mean our preference of course is self-determination yeah Uh, but you could easily just make the argument like yeah just you know one time cut the checks it turns out like the Chappelle show sketch which is very insidious honestly oh yeah um then you know that's what it is but then at least, you know, everyone can stop 
having to have meta conversations about checking privilege and all this shit. Just one time, you know, I, I feel like that's the pitch to white people is you don't have to, you know, all the just stupid fucking discourse and all that stuff can go away for a one time payment. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but it, yeah. it, it, it is, yeah, there's no point. If that's what we're talking about, then there's no point in trying to narrow the, you know, the group membership and draw the specific distinction about who was owned by who, where, and when, because we're not taking it back from the people who actually stole the wealth and labor. Right, right. And and that actually gets to, yeah, my other point, which is that the reason why I kind of walk through, like, breaking down the name and, like, why I have an issue with this, because I, I think... Is beyond semantics. I think the name itself is revealing a lot, because the the name itself, even you know, I looked through Adolf One Hundred and One in the agenda, and I think like you know certain things like set aside and those sorts of things. Like I'm not like I'm I'm one hundred percent supportive of reparations and specific set asides as you know those are, you know those aren't revolutionary demands. They're kind of reforms, but they're still good. But the the, the intense focus on like how tied black america is to america what it does is set the, it sets up the stage for an increased sense of american nationalism on black people and also an increased sense of xenophobia as well and i mentioned xenophobia in particular because um this is like another red flag that just came out like th- that people point out that like i honestly wish there was just better response to it is that you know one of the leaders of the main leader, I guess, of ADOS is Yvette Carnell, and she's a member of um, this organization called Progressives for Immigration Reform. And that organization is a front group for this far-right anti-immigrant organization called Federation for American Immigration Reform. And um, or yeah, FAIR, like fair, yeah, they're they're called fair. And um, even uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, you know, listed them as a as a hate group. And like, you know, so to me, it's just like, okay, that if we're pushing for rep- that to me sounds like I, I wouldn't want like that kind of connection and even rhetoric being attached to the reparations fight. Because if you see like a lot of stuff online, a lot of the rhetoric from many people in Eidos and to be fair to Yvette Carnell, even she had to come out publicly and denounce the xenophobia in Eidos because people will use the Eidos hashtag and the fight for reparations to engage in xenophobia against other groups of black people, especially like other groups of black people who are also entitled to reparations. Now we may, okay, there may be a difference in terms of like who's quote unquote cutting the check, but when it comes to the issue of reparations, especially when it comes to Caribbean immigrants, like black people in Latin America, et cetera, et cetera. And also I would say like many people on the African continent as well for like the damage that colonization did to Africa we're all owed reparations. So the reparations fight has to be a collective effort. There's no room for petty infighting and sectarianism among black people. So politically it's, it makes more, and this is actually like the, the, this has always been like the pan-African approach to, to reparations, which is that it has to be a collective effort. So Caribbeans have their specific claim. And by the way, CARICOM has also been, um, engaged in its own reparations fight so to me it would make sense like among people within ados who are serious about reparations work side by side with people in the caribbean who are also fighting for reparations boom that 
that's not, that that makes a ton of sense because again we're all descendants of the transatlantic slave trade we're all owed reparations so there is a common struggle for reparations politically so to have any kind of xenophobia tribalism and sectarianism among black people when we fundamentally were fighting for the same thing that's just going to shoot us in the foot it doesn't it doesn't take us anywhere it just it it makes enemies where it's unnecessary and so like that's like you know again like i support reparations specifically for african americans in the context of the united states but i still support reparations for black people in the caribbean black people in latin america um africans on the continent who are victims of you know generations of violent european colonialism like so we all have a common reparation struggle and to see uh xenophobia and sectarianism creep in it's just like that's where it just loses me that's where i'm just like i want i i so that's just that's just what frustrates me because i don't yeah given all the shit that our people have been through like we really have no fucking time for that and and before i forget uh when it comes to our african origins I'll, and, I'll mention, right, here's the transition yeah and this will easily transition <laughs> so um <laughs> uh, uh uh so i'll break this up so one will be the political aspect which so i think will will tie into like what what i think the better leverage would be and then i'll mention the cultural aspect and then we'll get into the we'll transition so the political aspect is that on the international community, people of African descent are already recognized as a distinct group. Um, the United Nations even declared that, and right now this didn't this doesn't give enough coverage. But from 2015 to 2024, this decade is the international decade for people of African descent. Um, the United Nations declared that, and this is on the uh, if if you go on their website, this is this is what they say. They said. Um, in proclaiming this decade, the inter- the international community is recognizing that people of African descent represent a distinct group, again, distinct group, whose human rights must be promoted and protected. Around 200 million people identifying themselves as being of African descent live in the Americas. Many more live in other parts of the world outside of the continent. Now, if you also go to the part where it says justice... Uh, they also talk about reparations, and I'm gonna um read read this. Cause and the reason why I'm reading this is because I think this is using this this kind of leverage, what I think would help black people in in the United States. Uh, so it says ensuring that people of African descent have full access to effective protection and remedies through the comp- competent national tribunals and other state institutions against any acts of racial racial discrimination. And the right to seek from such tribunals just an adequate reparation or satisfaction for any damage suffered as a result from discrimination. Uh, and then it also said, acknowledging and profoundly regretting the untold suffering and evils inflicted on millions of men, women, and children as a result of slavery, the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism, apartheid, genocide, and past tragedies, noting that some states have taken the initiatives to apologize and have paid reparations where appropriate for grave massive violations committed and calling on those that have not yes, not yet expressed remorse or presented apologies to find some way to contribute to the restoration of the dignity of the victim. So basically, the reason why I bring this up is that on an international level, it's already recognized that, one, 
people of African descent across the world do represent a distinct group and that we are owed reparations. And also that it's an international human rights issue. And also the African Union, I said this before, recognizes the African diaspora as its sixth region. And one of the ways it defined what the African diaspora is, they base it on common ancestry, basically common African ancestry, but via different waves of like migration, both voluntary, voluntary and involuntary migration, which includes uh, yeah, slavery. and semi-voluntary in the sense of like colonialism fucked up your homeland. So refugees, kinda, yeah, yeah, refugees, yeah. and also just economic migrants who sort of have to move right. somewhere so they can you know, actually mm-hmm. uh, make you know a good yeah. amount of money. <laughs> so, so the reason why I bring this up is that like it would be like politically smarter for people and just to be fair like i know there are some people many people in ados who don't co-sign the xenophobia but i just think it's fair to say that like ados has almost become synonymous with xenophobia i'm just gonna say that that's just fair to say because it's just i don't know i don't know whoever is in ados has does pr but maybe might want to work on that but I think like people who are, you know, care about reparations in terms of leverage, we're not going to get leverage through like census designation. That's not how it works. Like we can have like all the, you know, policy planning and all the data, 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 all we have. That's not going to make the United States uh, give African-Americans reparations. Like it's usually reparations happens through one is through war. Uh, two nations go to war against each other. The losing side has to pay reparations. So there's that. Or like yeah. there's there's some, um, you know, they have some like uh, sovereign entity like, you know, backing them or they're seen as like a sovereign nation. Like with indigenous peoples, they're seen as sovereign nations. The U.S. doesn't respect their sovereignty, but when they deal with Native Americans, they're dealing with technically sovereign nations. So they sign treaties and all that. So uh, in terms of leverage, there's no leverage through like a legal, like a, a piecemeal census designation. That this is not, that's that's not power. Now, if you have like the African Union and the U- UN both recognizing that, yeah, people of African descent in the diaspora, African Americans, represent a distinct group of people, and can provide, yeah, and, and provide some sense of uh, support, legitimacy to that cause. That's leverage. That that that's something that's politically useful so yeah and and i want to say get it mentioning sort of the international law stuff is important especially to push back against the idea that it's just like entitlement or whining or you know like oh everyone was enslaved at some point get over and it's like no this was all this was already worked out and is you know a matter of international law in terms of the rights of colonized people Mm -hmm. and victims of uh you know atrocities and all that stuff so it's important to say, like, this isn't just uh, people wanting free money, which, you know, is all, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just, you know, we want our two thousand dollar checks also. But uh, yes, that th- that these are that these are like sort of settled uh, concepts. Yeah. And also like the Africa, uh, African governments have have a history of. Um, supporting reparations for african-americans there's a whole history behind it that you know it's too much too long for this podcast but i mean there had there has been yes support at least moral and political support 
from African leaders, governments, and international institutions for reparations. And again, like this reparations fight has been going on for a long time. So, you know, what ADOS is doing is is nothing new. But I I do think like some of the uh, when there is that kind of level of like American centrism and xenophobia, I don't think politically it helps specifically like the reparations call for black Americans and also like by denying our African lineage and cutting ourselves off. I just don't think it's useful to cut ourselves off from Africa and the African diaspora, which again, politically, yeah, like we're all fighting for reparations on, on some level. So having like a united front across the diaspora for reparations that, that has way more political mileage than just like us fighting some sort of solo fight and being and some people be like oh i don't want to work with jamaicans because of blah 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 it's like, like oh, look get over it man um now the cultural aspect which will dovetail right into the next segment is uh yeah like there are you know i always like to as a musician i always like to educate people about like that there are African roots to African American music and culture, and I, I just think that that's important, especially for our own history. Um, people, g- g- the Gullah Geechee in South Carolina, that have preserved African culture for, geez, like generations, and oftentimes, like in the history of Black, like when people talk about Black America, like they often get. Um, I don't think people talk about them enough, but I do think the Gullah Geechee people are really important. And, you know, even interviews with them, they're very adamant about saying, like, no, like, we're African people, like, we're preserving our African culture. And and for them to do that, despite how fucking violent slavery is, like, that's a level of resilience that I think has to be respected and that we should claim with pride as African-Americans. And then um, blues and jazz are african origin i mean there's congo square in new orleans where that was like a place where enslaved africans were able to preserve their um african culture especially in the rest of north america where drums are banned um but then blues music itself traces back to west africa and the country of mali like so like the blues scale like traces back to africa so like even our culture has african origins and the same as like you know any other people of African descent throughout the diaspora. So I just think like, you know, like that's just something that's important to yeah, really embrace um, and appreciate in terms of our own history. And that also, yeah, let's, let's get into Kwanzaa. Yeah. Habara Ghani. Yes. Yeah. You're supposed to answer. Oh, <laughs> I need to better, I need to better yeah. my Swahili. Well, yeah, I was wondering, well, I was wondering if you were going to pick up on it. So, uh, so I'll say Habaragani, you then you have to say Ujima. So Uj- oh yeah, well yeah, Ujima. So t- yeah, so, today is uh, well, day I mean, four. We gotta do, we gotta do the whole thing. So Habaragani, Ujima. Okay, yeah. yeah. Which uh, so, I do need to, and yeah, I want to yeah. practice my Swahili a lot better. <laughs> yeah. So today is well, I guess it changed to the fifth day, but officially um, it's the fourth day of Kwanzaa, uh, and. Kwanzaa uh, is a, I suppose you can call it a Pan-African holiday, though it was invented by Americans. And I think this is actually a good reason why uh, sort of the narrow-minded and kind of subtle, or sometimes not so subtle, anti-African nature of sort of the Eidos movement is not just short-sighted, but also ahistorical, because 
there have already been sort of part of the black freedom struggle is you know reclaiming connections to africa and kwanzaa was invented in the 60s specifically for this reason so mm-hmm. i this has a an interesting place for me and when we started this podcast i was hoping we'd make it to the point of doing a kwanzaa episode because i grew up um celebrating it oh and cool yeah no we celebrate it every year which i guess it was a little weird um being a biracial family but it was something my dad insisted upon and i I certainly I thought it was a little I don't know dorky because it's not a thing that is widely celebrated as such. I was the only person I knew who ever really celebrated it. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, looking back on it, there's definitely some radical messages uh, that I did not pick up on in the you know in childhood. It was always like so there so there are seven days, uh, and it takes place the day after Christmas going into New Year's. So. December 26th is Umoja, which means unity. Uh, the next day is Kuji Chagulia, which is self-determination. Uh, then Ujima, collective work and responsibility. Today, Ujima is cooperative economics. And also, incidentally, the name of the black dorm at Stanford that Adam lived at, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, so our chat, <laughs> we had a chat, it was like, Ooh, Jama, ooh, ooh, Jama, say that, say what, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that was, that was, that was our chant, but, um, yeah, then the 30th is Nia, which is purpose, uh, the 31st is Kaumba, which is creativity, and then the first is Imani, which is faith, and sort of you celebrate it every night, you have a Kanara, which is sort of a candle holder, a candelabra type thing, and there's one black candle in the middle, and then three red and three green because it's red, black, green, the colors of uh, you know African Pan African nationalism. Yeah, that was yeah the red, black, and green. Um, you have to uh, give credit to um, Marcus Garvey. That was like the UNIA flag, but it became yeah, it's like red, black, and green are basically like the colors of Pan Africanism and Black nationalism. But a lot of African governments post-independence adopted those colors into their flags many of them adopt adopted also uh yellow slash gold so actually just yeah just explain the meaning of red black and green so black stands for you know black people red stands for um, blood like you know bloodline that goes to africa and then green is the land homeland of africa and then um some some put in um i guess gold to represent like the riches of africa so um that that's why red black and green um that's why so that's why yeah like in kwanzaa for the candles that peter's talking about like that's why they're red black and green but you'll see it in um even at um protests like black lives matter protests um like those colors are also like yeah like they do symbolize um resistance and self-determination for black people so like yeah like there is a very you know militant and radical history behind the meaning of those uh yeah. of those colors yeah so yeah you have the canaro which is the candelabra and then you have uh the pente cloth sort of in front of it which you can kind of put offerings so usually there's like some corn some like colored corn and some other stuff so 
it has like some gourds um and then you uh light the candle or yeah i think you light the candle then you say a bargani and then you say um the uh the name of the day and then you light that candle and sort of you move out so then by the end of the week like all the candles are lit and usually like we try to spend a day doing something um related to the concept so i feel like umoja i think we'd always like try to play a board game what i always remember was that ujima collective work and responsibility was always like an excuse to do house projects it's like uh, i don't like that day but then the <laughs> next but then we always like ujima was uh cooperative economics and that was always like supporting black owned businesses like usually the kind of getting takeout from you know one of the like uh, soul food restaurants i remember the first time i ever had chicken and waffles was uh ujima celebration um i think when when i was a teenager and you know you know try to do something creative on new year's eve or something and you know as as we got as me and my brother got older we kind of did it a little bit less because it was, it was always hard to kind of, like, mesh into, you know, the monster that is Christmas. Um, yeah. That just overwhelms the senses. And, um, others, and, you know, also just, like, not really, not really being a widespread thing. But uh, coming back to it, and especially this year, where I've just been pretty down on Christmas in general. I've been thinking a lot. I've been, you know, happy that this kind of a holiday I think is actually quite useful for the end of the year. And also just that the principles in it are really quite radical. So, you know, yeah, the Ujima principle, it, that's um, based on the socialist ideology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is basically socialism. Yeah. Like, so Fujichagawea is basically like revolutionary nationalism, which I found very funny because Kamala Harris is pretending she celebrates Kwanzaa. Right. And so um, when she was doing Kuji Chagawea, it was like self-determination is about like owning yourself and like being that person oh, just God. going for it. And admittedly, I, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't kind of realize what that meant. Now, knowing the actual sort of revolutionary traditions, I'm like, oh, wow. And yeah. I find, you know, and uh, unity, obviously, um Collective work and responsibility is also like a socialist concept. Like mm-hmm. collective labor produces wealth that is then, uh, you know, shared. But it, that understanding that it's a product of collective labor. Yeah. And and then I think also just kind of the more abstract ones like purpose and faith is like a recognition of uh, of just sort of the different ways the struggle uh, manifests itself throughout throughout the years and has and sort of the need to yeah you know keep the faith as we always say and yeah having purpose and yeah also creativity because there is a creative element to any struggle for liberation and um i mean it is kind of funny how radical it is considering that you know we'll just get the disclaimer Mm -hmm. out of the way about uh karenga ron yeah yeah who was a who was like a professor, I think, who sort of got the funding to kind of come up with the concept, but then started working for the FBI mm-hmm. um, with the US organization and like picked a fight with the Black Panthers. Yeah. And, and then sort of went a little off the rails and 
you know, got like in prison, got charged for kid, got kidnapping charges and stuff. And, you know, sometimes people bring that up as a means to discredit it. I mean, what I will say is that I didn't know any of this growing up. I don't think my dad did either um, or, or really understood all of that history. But also it doesn't negate it because the ideas are bigger than one person. Right. It's, and, it's kind of, Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. And I think actually there's something to be said for, you know, under, you know, accepting sort of the, you know, distasteful. All history is filled with contradictions and, you know, unsavory elements and stuff. Yes. That doesn't negate what the larger struggle is. And I think I would, you know, one of my wish, especially, you know, as I think there's like kind of a reawakening of consciousness is that people uh, reexamine Kwanzaa. I mean, certainly if we're going to, certainly everyone who, uh, who suddenly discovered Juneteenth, I'd like to see them put, uh, you know, the same kind of energy into Kwanzaa. It's not as, it's not like just a party holiday, though. I think there certainly could be plenty of parties involved. I think you know, you if we get everyone kind of putting their heads together on it, it could be really a great celebration. And I think that it is also perfect for kind of end of year reflections and sort of you know taking. I think it actually makes a lot of sense to put it where it was because you know growing up I was like, why is it there? But it makes sense because it is you know. Every year on, you know, being subjected to America, let's say, uh, it, you know, weighs on you and is another, you know, is another part of history. And taking that time at the end of the year to sort of reflect on where the struggle is, where it can go, you know, uh, and holding on to these concepts that are that are really important and really quite radical, especially in the context of America. Um I think is really important. And so, you know, I just wanted to make sure we give out our little shout out to Kwanzaa. Yeah. And I want to, yeah, just mention about Ron Karenga. He's, he now, I think he still chairs the Africana Studies Department at um, Cal State Long Beach. Oh, he's so, still alive. Yeah, he's um, actually into the new year. He's almost 80. He's 79 right now. So he's, oh, yeah, wow. he he's up in age, but, um, yeah, like, I mean, just to kind of give some context for, for people who may not, cause mentioned in Karenka, it's kind of like, that's, it's kind of getting, um, in the weeds when it comes to, oh, black. wow. So he was like 24 when he made Kwanzaa. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was young. Um, I mean, a lot of, a lot of those, um, those black radicals during that time, they're all pretty young and like, they're all like in their yeah. 20s. And stuff. Yeah. Many, many of them are still around. I suppose I shouldn't just assume. <laughs> yeah. But. uh but yeah like the um there was like a a split between you know groups like the black panthers which were much more communist and then the black nationalists like more like i would say cultural nationalist types like karenga and so yeah like that like there's um there's definitely like an an ideological difference but um you know like yeah like karenga was like a like an op basically he he collaborated with the you know the feds and um yeah he has uh i mean he was he was convicted and imprisoned for you know felony assault and and uh um you know beating and torturing women so like he like you know karenga is not a he's an i mean he's just an asshole but you know but at the same time it's like when we're talking about holidays peter's right like the principles of 
the reason why we celebrate holidays is because of you know the principles and what they mean to people we don't celebrate holidays because of the you know specific uh individual who you know because i think like you know when people say like oh screw kwanzaa because of karenga well you know I would I would love to hear about their views on Christmas because there's a lot of uh, <laughs> you know if you dig into the history of Christmas I mean there's a lot of like I mean first of all like Jesus most likely was not born on December 25th so there's that and there's a lot of like you know appropriation of pagan ho- pagan traditions into Christmas and you know there's and not to mention like the amount of violence that's been used to that was used in the name of of christianity so but the thing is like look people still celebrate christmas because you know what what they what it means to people and also like you know it now is a hyper capitalist holiday like people don't really yeah christmas though i will say like their gift giving like is part of kwanzaa the sawadi but you get gifts for seven days instead of an orgy of consumption on one day so yeah i mean the kids and um also, to to be fair, like uh, Kwanzaa is not a Karenga holiday. Like there, there are revolutionary Black women who are involved in promoting Kwanzaa. In in and I, some people have said that like Karenga wasn't really the one who created Kwanzaa. Like there were other like he got the idea from other Black radicals, especially Black women. So I do want to, you know, on this week of Kwanzaa, I do want to honor the late sister mckenya sebeko uh, koyati so she's known as the queen mother of kwanzaa and she brought black studies to the east bay the east bay area so like oakland san leandro like so she was born in san leandro and so she she, she did cross paths with karenga so the two knew each other um so she was also very insp- instrumental in spreading kwanzaa Actually, yeah, throughout the diaspora. So Peter is Peter is right. Like Kwanzaa really is like a Pan African holiday, um, and yeah. So um, Sister Kiate, uh, Koyate, she, yeah, she was very instrumental in um, uh, spreading Kwanzaa and promoting Black studies. Um, unfortunately, she passed away on February fourth, twenty seventeen. So she was born. July 1st, 1926, and passed away uh, February 4th, 2017. But um, there's a really good article in remembrance of her in uh, the San Francisco Bayview newspaper. So San Francisco Bayview, for, you know, this is more kind of uh, in the weeds black history, but it's a a black-owned newspaper in um, San Francisco's Bayview. Yeah, one of the last remaining, like, independent ones that actually has a print edition. Yeah, uh, I've I've written I've written for them before. I know some of the people who you know who uh, who've worked with it. So um, yeah, they're based in San Francisco's Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood, which is yeah still a black neighborhood in San Francisco. Given how basically much basically the last one, <laughs> it really is. It's like the last black neighborhood in San Francisco. Um, so uh, yeah, there's a really good article about Sister Coyote, um, Queen Mother of Kwanzaa. That I'm gonna I'm going to put in the show notes. So I want I want I really just want to give a shout out to her name because Kwanzaa is always associated with Karenga, and so yeah, people will bring up the really ugly history of Karenga to discredit the holiday of Kwanzaa and the principles of it. But there were she, there were much there were more people who were involved in um, spreading Kwanzaa and promoting it who I think 
you know, uh, I think they, I think someone like Sister Coyote deserves more recognition than Karanga, uh, to be fair. So, you know, for, I think it, and yeah, my family's different. We, we normally don't, didn't celebrate Kwanzaa, but you know, I think, uh, having live in a dorm that was named after a Kwanzaa principal, uh, I agree with Peter that the principles of Kwanzaa are good principles, principles in and of themselves and are, yeah, I think principles for, you know, um, yeah, actual like real, uh, revolution and progressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, so. that kind of spiritual commitment to the struggle also just, uh, I just realized, yeah, when, if you're talking about Christmas, it's like who, like who basically invented Christmas, like, uh, like, like Emperor Constantine. Right. You know? <laughs> so yeah, right, right. Roman emperors, it's like, that's, that's why Christmas is where it is. That's why it's a thing. So, you know, take that. Uh, um, yeah. If you're, if, it, if you're going to pick one or the other, uh, just, you don't have to, because it's after Christmas, but, uh, yeah, I suppose, I suppose if you're in Canada, it might infringe on Boxing Day, but um otherwise i yeah i think people should definitely give it a second look and you know i've my life's been pretty chaotic this year and just in general you know the holidays are always pretty chaotic so it's hard to like kind of develop a ritual for actually celebrating it especially sort of outside of a family context but i think that it's definitely just something to uh you know sit with and try to focus on because there are yeah there's a lot of really great ideas in it and um also for the podcast i uh i recorded a djembe performance that i did um and part of it's dedicated to kwanzaa but also i wanted to give um uh a more hopeful message given just how (laughs) terrible this year has been just you know how i think it's important for you know, us to embrace our African roots and values and principles. And, you know, that's something we can carry with us and that are part of our history and part of the struggle that's, you know, worth honoring and remembering, especially the people who came before us. Um, so that's on our, that's, that's on our Patreon. So, you know, you can easily view that and, uh, you know, what I said in in the performance. Um, I think uh, we're almost out of time, but I just want to mention just like a few news items uh, before we, you know, mm-hmm. before we sign off. Um, so, yeah, Tamir Rice, um, you know, no charges for the officers who killed Tamir Rice, so they've been let off. No surprise. I mean, I'm, I mean, I didn't even know there. I didn't even know that was still going on. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. E- I I didn't know either. Um, you know, but I, I just read a headline that, yeah, like, basically the, the, the cops got off, um, which, you know, sadly is not surprising, but, um, yeah, and then um, there's also, oh, yeah, what Peter talked about with the $2,000, uh, um, you know, stimulus money. Uh, also, before, before I forget, yeah, there is also, like, this lawsuit um, that's being presented against Hayward Police. They shot this... Um, uh they shot someone in the back i think it was a young hold on let me bring up the uh article there's a lawsuit that alleges that hayward police um 
Yeah, uh, uh, I think it's a, a a teenager from Stockton. Um, they shot him in the back, and then they the police dug the bullets out of the teenager. Yeah, so that I I I had to I just wanted to I don't want to go too much into it, but it's you know I'll leave the article in the show notes just you know just as uh, news items. But yeah, the two thousand um, uh, dollar well, Trump finally signed the um, stimulus package that includes the six hundred dollar stimulus checks, which you know it really isn't shit. But hey, I'll take six I'll take six hundred dollars. But you know, there's like another. This is this is what's funny is that like Trump is outflanking, he's flanking Democrats from the left, and he was like, yeah. actually, well, he's, he's lame duck, so he doesn't really care what the Republicans say. Yeah, he and wants also to save a little bit of face before he has to get out of there. And I think he's also mad that um the Republicans didn't have his back for his. Oh you know, yeah, oh so, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so but it's like, hey, whatever. I mean, I'll take the two. So he was, yeah, he he said that. Six hundred dollars is ridiculous. It should be two thousand dollars stimulus checks, and so the Democrats took them up on it, and the um, the House of Representatives passed a, a bill that includes the two thousand dollars stimulus checks. So that got passed under the House with a two thirds majority. Then um, now it's at the Senate, uh, you know, where Mitch McConnell's the leader and the the Senate Majority Leader and. Uh, Mitch McConnell so far is blocking the vote, but Bernie Sanders is, um, he's Bernie Sanders. Like he's not fucking around. I got to give it to him. He, he, um, basically he's, um, leveraging the defense bill, basically saying that if, um, McConnell doesn't. Yeah. Well, every year, sort of the, the $740 billion required to fund the defense department is just understood to kind of basically pass unanimously. Yeah. So what Bernie is doing is basically saying he's going to hold up that uh, that bill passing that will fund the Defense Department, which, you know, shouldn't be. Yeah, that shouldn't pass, you know. But, um, yeah, he's going to hold that up until, you know, there is an actual vote on the $2,000 checks. And something that is interesting because there's still the Georgia Senate races, and that's kind of the thing that might box McConnell in and kind of changes things. And I think both of the Senate candidates today, like kind of came out in favor of $2,000. So my initial sort of pessimistic uh, default was like, yeah, they're not going to do that, but they might do it. I, you know, if they do, I'm probably going to buy a gun. So, um, (laughs) Hey, it's your second amendment, right? Yeah, no, it is. That's not, that's, there's, there's nothing legally actionable about that statement. So. Well, you're you are you are supporting the hardworking men and women in the firearms industry. So you know, sure, the, sure, why not? The, the you know, yeah. So you're supporting American business during this tough time. So you know, yeah. I mean, but but yeah, I they he may have to move. It, um, you know, the calculation would be that if he, you know, like like right before these Senate special elections, to then just make it be all on the Senate Republicans to say they're the reason people aren't getting $2,000 checks is a very bad look politically. But it is also quite possible that they're willing to eat that just so that, you know, people don't get the idea that these are the kinds of things that they can demand. 
So yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Obviously, fingers crossed, because we could all use $2,000. But, uh, you know, this is America. So on that note. Yeah. Um, yeah, on that note, we'll blend it. But actually, yeah, I, th- I just think, you know, um, before I sign off, uh, yeah, this year has been. <sighs> it's been the worst year of my life. God, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For for reasons you can go back and listen to. Yes. uh, (laughs) um, Yeah. It's, yeah, it's been, you know, history's back, baby. Uh, Yeah. You know, 21st century finally woke up. I mean, it certainly woke up early for, you know, the people of Iraq, let's say. But for Mm -hmm. us, you know, we were still kind of fumbling along thinking it was the end of history or whatever. But I think it's pretty safe to say that's not true anymore. So who knows uh, what the next year and next decade will hold? But uh, yeah, who knows it's, what it's going to be interesting. What twenty twenty one will hold? I mean, with a Biden Harris administration, and uh, yeah, but I mean, we will we will be here uh, <laughs> talking about and commenting on that history as it develops in real time. But uh, yeah, twenty twenty sucked. Um, I don't know about 2021, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think, uh, I got, I got, I got big plans for 2021, so I think it's going to be good. Yeah. I, I, I just think like, you know, whenever, cause it it almost seems like this, we're reaching some sort of, uh, getting close to the end of the tunnel with this pandemic. Now that these vaccines are, people are taking the vaccines. So, I mean, we'll, it, it just seems like whenever this pandemic um, is quote unquote over, uh, what life post pandemic will look like. And it seems like with the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, we're at that sort of uh, transition. But, um, you know, I mean, fuck it. Hey, 2021, bring it on, baby. There. Yeah, yeah. Bring it it's on. It's a level of like, you know, once you've gone through this, what more can they do to you? But uh, don't want to. Yeah. I'm sure that I don't want to. I don't want to put that out too much because right. <laughs> it always got worse. But yeah, we'll see. But <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, on that note, uh, keep the faith and stay dangerous. See ya. Peace.